My dad was from West Texas, and he was always uh, coming up with these little phrases that were, I, I guess, homey, homey sayings. And one of them that I that I liked and has stuck with me is when he would use to describe somebody who didn't have any spending money, if it was himself or somebody else, didn't have any money to spare, he would say that that person was broker than the Ten Commandments. And that, that phrase has stuck with me because uh, even though my dad wasn't particularly uh, religious or not overtly so, um, there is a lot of depth in that statement. The idea that the Ten Commandments are something that, that are broke, um, and it's hard to imagine anything that is broker than the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and we know that they are broken. Jesus told us that they're broken all the time. He said that the, the ones that we think we, we are obeying, we probably aren't, uh, or not as well as we need to. Um, he told the, he told his, uh, uh, audience in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless you're righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of, of the law, then you, you, you may not enter the kingdom. So Jesus says that, that whatever we think the, the Ten Commandments say uh, that we need to do, uh, we probably need to think a little bit higher. And he gave some examples in that same sermon. He said, he said, um, uh, uh, we have this tendency of saying, well, look, you know, I don't, I don't keep all of the Ten Commandments, but there's some I keep, right? I haven't murdered anybody lately. And Jesus said, well, you think that. He said, he said, uh, you have heard it was said of old, uh, uh, that you shall not murder. But I say to you, and then he raises the, the bar. He says, he says the import of that commandment is actually deeper. He says, he says that if you are angry with your brother, or if you call your brother an insulting name, Jesus says that these things come from the same place as the impulse to murder somebody. They're fundamentally unloving things. And so Jesus says that it's very easy to find ourselves breaking the Ten Commandments in spirit, if not in, in letter. So, um, so the Ten Commandments are broken a lot, and it's hard to imagine anybody who is broker than the Ten Commandments. So uh, what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is look at the Ten Commandments, and one of them in particular. Uh, the reason for that is we are we're starting a new conversation for Lent. Lent is the the season of um, of repentance that precedes Holy Week and Easter, and uh, it is it is uh, forty days, but you don't get to count the Sunday. So anyway, it's six weeks long. But, uh, but we're going to, uh, ignore the last week because Holy Week has got a lot of complications. So for practical purposes, there are five regular Sundays in Lent. And, and so I was looking for a topic that would, uh, that would, that would be a reasonable use of five weeks that we could spend some time rep- repenting to, to repent to, um, not necessarily to feel sorry or to mope around, but to rethink the way we think about things, and in particular, to rethink about the Ten Commandments, to, to say, well, you know what, it's true, I don't keep the Ten Commandments as well as I should, that there are things about the Ten Commandments that I don't keep. So we're going to spend some time repenting them, um, repenting in the area of the Ten Commandments. But the problem is um, that there's basically five weeks to do this in, and there's Ten Commandments, and that means two commandments a week, and uh, that's that's a hard thing to imagine uh, me getting through. So I decided maybe instead of ten, I could I could look at one as kind of a representative example, and then we could imagine the ways that the other commandments are things that we're not we're not obeying as well as we ought to. So that raises the question, of course, which commandment then do do we spend five weeks looking at? And the the obvious candidate for me is the fourth commandment, the commandment that says that we are to um, to uh, uh, 
uh, honor the, the Sabbath day, to keep it holy for the Lord, that there's six days we can do all of our work, but the seventh day is a day of rest. That is the idea of the fourth commandment. And what makes it unique among all the other commandments is it's the one that people brag about breaking. Uh, you know, you don't hear people brag about the way that they've made a graven image or that they've dishonored their, their parents. Uh, they may do those things, but they rarely brag about them. But the, the fourth commandment, the commandment to, to, um, to, uh, obey the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath is one that we, we do tend to, to, um, to boast about. We, we have a cultural norm in our society of being busy, 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 uh, 24-7, 360. And because of that, we have this idea that that it's actually a good thing to um, to uh, to violate the Sabbath. We we don't keep the Sabbath as well as we should. And uh, when I say we, I mean I mean me and probably you, but definitely me. It's something I'm not very good at, and in fact, I'm I'm so bad at it that I've asked our SPRC here at the church to uh, to to hold me accountable to actually uh, make that one of the things that they they quiz me about to make sure that I'm I'm uh, developing as a Christian in that area among all the others. So um, so we could talk about the fourth commandment, but my my fear about the fourth commandment is that five weeks wouldn't be enough to really delve into it because it is something that goes so far against our cultural norms. So so what would be my next choice? Well, my my next choice. Um, is the ninth commandment. And, and when I number these things, the fourth and the ninth, I need to point out that not all, uh, Christian traditions number them the same way. I'm a Presbyterian minister, so I number them according to the reform numbering. Different traditions use different ones. But the ninth commandment, the way that, the way that my tradition, uh, numbers them is the commandment that we are to, uh, not to false, uh, testify falsely. That in the old language, we are not to bear false witness. And that's a big topic too, a surprisingly big topic. And I don't think anybody's proud about uh, the way that they do that, the way that they are about uh, violating the, the Sabbath. But at the same time, it's something that I think the trend is is going in the wrong direction. I think people are increasingly um, asked to violate that commandment, and I think we are increasingly comfortable doing so. That there's a lot of things in our culture right now that are that are militating in the direction of uh, testifying falsely. And so we're going to spend five weeks looking at that. And today we're just going to, um, to, to look at the surface of that. But I think the problem with the, the bearing false witness is that there are some, some things, like I said, in the culture that are militating toward, uh, toward bearing false witness. And, and the two that I would, that, that I'm most concerned about personally are the, the 24 hour news cycle and the influence of social media because it gives us a never ending stream of stories that, that we don't know, uh, ourselves. We're, we're getting them second hand or, or tenth hand, uh, from uh, a little video st- segment that somebody posted on YouTube or on Facebook or something. We're only getting a piece of the story, but we're being, um, encouraged to, to bring our own hot take to the situation. So, uh, I'm not saying that that's where all of the false witness in our society comes from, but I think those are two things that are really militating to make us more and more comfortable bearing false witness. So we'll be looking at that later in, uh, in our, um, in our conversation, but but today we're just going to set the table. When Jesus talked about uh, not murdering people, he assumed people could understand what it means to not murder people. And then he said, but I'm going to tell you even more of the way that, that you may be uh, doing things that come from the same place as murder. So he could do that because everybody knows what it means to kill somebody. Uh, but in the case of false witness, uh, 
it's not clear exactly what does that mean. Is that, does that mean lying? Does it mean just things in a courtroom? What does that actually mean? So we're going to look at a story today that, that uh, as a way of kind of uh, establishing the baseline. You know, uh, this is the one thing that everybody can agree on. This is absolutely false witness, and then we can proceed from there. So the story we're going to look at today comes from uh, the, the book of Kings, the first book of Kings. We're going to be looking at chapter 21, and it's... Uh, um, the the story uh, the, broadly it's from the period of time when the prophet Elijah was ministering. So uh, the story we're going to look at today happened sometime before about 850 BC, so about 29 centuries ago, something uh, in, in the neighborhood of 29 centuries ago. And what had happened is that there had been one kingdom, what was called the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, and it was uh, the, the the kings of Israel the, of the United Kingdom were only two. There was David who established, uh, well, there's three. There was um, Saul who was the king that was rejected by God, and then there was King David, and then his son, King Solomon. And they were the kings of of the United Kingdom. But Solomon's son was not a good king, and what happened is the is the country split up. We're familiar um, with the maps of the United States. We see them in elections and so forth that show, you know, red states versus blue states. And uh, for for us, we're used to the idea the blue states are largely the ones um, on the coasts and the red states are the ones in the middle of the country. In the case of Israel, if you were to do the same thing, red state, blue state, then then you'd make one of them, the say, say the blue, that would be in the north and the red would be in the south. So that was the way that they divided up their country after this split. So... So um, this period was called the divided monarchy as opposed to the united monarchy. And one of the kings of the northern kingdom, the the let's call it the blue the blue um, the blue kingdom as opposed to the red or vice versa. That the, one of the kings of the northern kingdom was a man named Ahab. So we're going to read about Ahab, who uh, was uh, uh, throughout throughout the scriptures. We see he is a he is a bad king. He's um, he does not do as God would ask a king to do. So. Um, he's not good, and neither is his wife Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel at least has an excuse because she is not one of the people of God. She was married to Ahab as part of a political alliance. Her her, her country of origin is further north. She's from what is today modern-day um, Lebanon. She's from a, a kingdom called Sidon, which is north of that northern kingdom. Um, so she, she's not familiar with the rules and the the, the, the culture of the northern kingdom and, and the Israel the way that the way that Ahab was. So she's got more of an excuse for being the way she is. Ahab doesn't have that excuse. Uh, we also read about one other person. We read about we read about um, a man named Naboth, and Naboth has a, uh, a vineyard. Naboth has a vineyard that the king wants. And the reason is because it's adjacent to the king's property and he would like to have all this property. So imagine you had a farm across the street from the White House. That's that's kind of the situation that Naboth is in. So we read in verse uh, 1 of chapter 21, it says, Now it happened sometime later that Naboth from Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel that was next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. So Samaria is another name for that northern kingdom. So Ahab ordered Naboth, give me your vineyard. So he said, you know, we're going to do some um, imminent domain here. Give me your uh, vineyard so it can become my vegetable garden because it is right next to my palace. I really like its placement. And in exchange for it, I'll give you an even better vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll pay you the price in silver. So Ahab is is actually being fair, uh, fair by the standards of that era. He's saying, I'll actually pay you for it. I won't just take it. But Naboth says, I can't. Naboth responded to Ahab, Lord forbid that I give you my family inheritance. 
And what he's referring to is the way that the, the land laws worked in, in Israel, uh, going back to the, to the beginning of the time when Israel uh, uh, lived in the Holy Land, uh, was that the, the land was uh, given uh, based on families, and, and no one generation could permanently alienate that land from that family. Even if you were, even if your back was up against the wall and you sold it uh, in a bankruptcy, um, you could always you could always buy it back because it was tied to your family. And in fact, every fifty years in the year of jubilee, it would be uh, returned to your family free of cost. So he says, I can't. I can't undo this, that this is my family land. I can't give it to you so you could have a uh, um, a vegetable garden there. So he says no. So verse 4, Ahab went to his palace irritated and upset at what Naboth had said to him because Naboth had said, I won't give you my family inheritance. And Ahab kind of sulks about it. Ahab lay down in his bed and turned his face away. He wouldn't eat anything. And his wife Jezebel came to him. Why are you upset and not eating any food? She asked He answered her, I was talking to Naboth. I said, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard for it. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, aren't you the one who rules Israel? She says, what kind of king, what what kind of kingdom is it where the king doesn't get what he wants? Aren't you the one who rules? Get up, eat some food and cheer up. I'll get Naboth's vineyard for you myself. Just give me your seal because I'm going to send some executive orders. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name putting his seal on them. She sent them to the elders and officials who lived in the same town as Naboth. And this is what she wrote in the letters. Announce a fast and place Naboth at the head of the people. Now, uh, announcing a fast, the the idea here was that uh, th- that somehow you became aware that your, your community or your people had done something to offend God or in, in, for Jezebel, maybe for the gods. And you've done something to get on the wrong side of the deity. So what do you do? Well, you proclaim a fast. You sit in ashes and, and you say, we're sorry. We won't do it again. Forgive us. You, you say that sort of thing. So he says, uh, so tell the people that there's something that God is angry about and they need to have a fast. The reason for that is we'll see is to is to stir the people up. So they're not just it's not just, you know, any random Tuesday. It's a Tuesday when people are anxious because uh oh God's God's upset with us. We better do something um because God is upset with us. There's a fast going on. So she says she says, announce a fast and place Naboth at the head of the of the people. So give him a prominent seat. Now scholars tell us that could mean one of two things. It could mean that that means sit him at the defendant's table. You know, like in a courtroom drama, make it clear to everybody that he's the one and he's going to have to prove he's innocent. Uh, because that was, that was the idea. God's angry. Somebody's done something wrong. We think it's Naboth and he better prove himself innocent. So maybe that's what she's getting at. Or maybe it's just so that, uh, the witnesses know who they're going to testify against. They're going to come in and they're going to lie. Uh, but they may not know who Naboth is because Naboth has done nothing wrong. So maybe it's just to, to make sure that they can spot him in the group. So she says, sit him, sit him at the head of the people. Then bring in two liars in front of him and have them testify as follows. You cursed God and king. Then take Naboth outside and stone him so he dies. So she just says, bring in some guys, suborn some, some false testimony from them, have them perjure themselves to, to make this false claim about Naboth that he had, uh, um, uh, blasphemed God, that he had, he had cursed God and the king. And then the punishment for that would be to take him outside and stone him so he dies. So that's what, that's what, um, 
she proposes, and it's it's shocking that that what she would do is so cold blooded and so so wrong, and the the writer has to repeat it to make sure we got just the importance of uh, the significance of what she did. So he repeats it. The elders and the officials who lived in Naboth's town did exactly as Jezebel specified in the letters that she had sent. They announced a fast, like she'd said. They placed Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two liars came and sat in front of him. They testified against Naboth in front of the people. Naboth cursed God and king. So the people took Naboth outside the town and stoned him so that he died. It was then reported to Jezebel, Naboth was stoned. He's dead. So that's the story of Naboth, and the rest of the chapter explains the way that that, um, that uh, God was paying attention when all this happened. So, so that's that's the story. It is it is a, a it is a cut and dried case of false witness. These two men came in. There's two because in in the law of of Israel uh, that it, you couldn't put anybody to death on the wit, on the testimony of just one witness. You needed two eyewitnesses. So there are two liars who have come up and testified against Naboth. So. What is the lesson? Well, the lesson is actually very easy. This is, this is the first week. We're still trying to get, uh, clear on what, what the basic idea of false witness is. What, what does it mean to testify falsely? And this is the one. It should be very easy for all of us to say, I don't do that. You know, hopefully nobody's going, yeah, I need to knock that out. You know, I need to cut that out. That's just, uh, that's wrong every time I do that. So, so don't testify falsely. Um, so again, this is the easy part. But um, we're, we're going we're gonna to be going from here to look at some of the some of the deeper significance of this of this commandment and some of the other places it's teased out in the scriptures. So, so uh, the the basic idea: don't do that thing. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of um, observations about this, and then maybe some applications. So, so the first thing is how it talks about the liars. Um, this this word that's, that's translated liar in the in the text, uh, it it literally is a is a it's it's literally um, a son of iniquity. It's a, it's it's a it's a bad seed. Um, it's somebody who does wrong characteristically. It's it's not just they they made a mistake that one day, but they are they are sold out, died in the wool, wrongdoers. Um, that's that's so so Jezebel says you know there's always some in a town round a couple up and have them do this thing. So um, they are they are liars and. Um, I think I think today the danger isn't that that there are people who are just intrinsically bad people. I think today often we we find ourselves doing something that is wrong. Um, we find ourselves uh, piling on or getting involved, particularly as I've said in a social media situation, not because we have any particular knowledge, but because we see ourselves as allies. We want to make sure that everybody who knows us knows what side we're on, and so we we want to be seen as allies. But we should ask ourselves. Am I an ally or am I a tool? Am I somebody who actually is is expressing their true opinion, their 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 the honest witness about where they're coming from, or is it something where I'm I'm doing the 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 bidding one way or the other of people who whose motives I'm not even clear on? Maybe uh, if we think about the things that make us uh, behave the way we do in in public, in, in in social settings, and in particular in online settings, maybe we should ask ourselves, am I an ally? Am I actually presenting my own my own witness or am I simply a tool of somebody whose motives I don't understand? So so we need to ask ourselves, am I being one of these liars? 
the, the second group of people that, that we can look at here and say, well, I don't want to be one of them is the elders and the officials. They get a letter in the mail from the queen that says, do these things that are patently wrong. And they do. Nobody resigns. Nobody, you know, blows a whistle. Nobody does anything like that because it's, it's the ninth century BC and they didn't have witness, uh, they, they didn't have a whistleblower protection laws or anything like that. But we do today. We need to ask ourselves, am I being asked to do something that is, that is wrong? Am I being involved in something that is, that is false? Is my participation in this, in this, um, activity actually lending it credence when, when I know from the inside that it's a false, that it's a false thing? We may say, well, I don't do that, but, but we need to ask ourselves, is that true? I was thinking there's a, there's a quote from, um, uh, the New York judge Saul Wachtler. So uh, Saul Wachtler, he was a judge in the state court of New York, and he said that that he could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. That basically people come in, they don't, they're not familiar with the law, and as a prosecutor, he could he could get um, anybody to do anything. He could get them to indict a ham sandwich. Uh, that they would be dazzled by the procedures and they would think what they were doing was right because somebody in a higher position told them it was right. And we need to ask ourselves um, uh, if that's the situation we're in. If we're in a situation where we're actually indicting a ham sandwich or doing what somebody else said, not because it's something we believe or understand, but because it seems like it's the, it's the right thing for us to do. So we need to ask ourselves, am I in the position of these elders and these officials in the town? Am I doing wrong because I'm kind of baffled or because I'm afraid of not doing what I'm told? So, so that's a, that's a question we should ask. The, the, the third person we can look at is Jezebel herself. Jezebel, uh, engages in this, in this uh, she, she, she creates this conspiracy because she won't admit what she really wants. She doesn't simply say, we're going to take this land from Naboth. So she, uh, she, she creates this, this whole conspiracy that is designed to, to get Naboth on a completely a different charge of what, what his real charge is, which was respecting the law about the property. So, so she, she does what is called a, a process crime that, that you can't get the person on the charge you'd like to, so I'm going to get you on a different charge. And we think, you know, the most, the most famous example of this is probably back in the Prohibition era when the gangster Al Capone was convicted on a tax charge because they couldn't figure out how to get him on the, the, the mobster charges, the, the racketeering and the murder and the other things that he did that were wrong. And we can say, well, sometimes you just have to do that, but we should also ask ourselves, is there something, you know, is that, a, is that an alarm bell? Is, is there something wrong with our system when I find myself using a process charge against somebody? The, you know, you, you didn't pay your taxes on your ill-gotten gains instead of actually dealing with the ill-gotten gains. We might ask ourselves, am I being honest here? Am I engaged in something that's fundamentally dishonest? So we can ask about that. Um, uh, and sometimes that is that is the purpose that that the the process crime is designed simply to make our lives difficult. There's a story from the 1980s. The labor secretary was a man named Ray Donovan, and he was charged with uh, being having having ties with the mafia, and he he uh, he was not convicted. In fact, his lawyers didn't even call a single witness because the case was so weak, and the jury the jury acquitted him. And afterwards, he said. Now, 
where do I go to get my reputation back? Because he'd been in the news. Everybody knew that that was Ray Donovan. He was tied up with the mobsters. And the jury looked at the actual evidence and they said, no, you're not. There, there's no evidence here that you were, you were tied up with the mob. But it was too late. He was already sullied and his reputation was sullied. That was the punishment, not, not a, a conviction, but simply to make him go through that. And he asked the question, now where do I go to get my reputation back? So we can ask ourselves, are we using process crimes? Are we, are we delighting in seeing somebody just have to, to, to prove their own innocence instead of, instead of giving them the, the assumption that they are innocent? So those are the first three. But the last one is Ahab himself. Ahab is complicit in this. He may have his back to the, to, back to the room, staring at the wall, sulking. But he's complicit. He was the one who gave Jezebel his seal so she could send those executive orders out. Um, he is the one that Elijah comes to. Uh, in, in the next couple of verses, Elijah the prophet, God sends him to Ahab, not to Jezebel, not to the elders and officials, not to the liars. He sends him to Ahab. It says, I was watching what you did. Ahab is complicit, even though he hasn't done anything. All he did was sulk and give his wife the seal for those orders. And the reason I bring this up is because we are citizens and residents of a democracy. We live in a country where the power is invested not in a king up on high, but in the people largely. So collectively, we are the king. And so we have to ask, ask ourselves, what's being done in our name? What are the Jezebels and the elders and the officials doing in our name? And I was thinking about the um, the the tragedy this past summer. You remember the the death of George Floyd, and we talked a lot about uh, police violence and things like that. Um, if if you didn't see my message on that, you can you can look that up. It's online. Um, so that that's a, that's a terrible situation, and we talked a lot about police violence and things like that. And one of the questions that came up at that time was, should the police have body cameras? But if you think about it, the police are are really the weakest people in the government in terms of their ability to do wrong. Um, any wrong they do is done on a retail basis. But there are people, there are elders and officials, there are Jezebels who have the capability of doing wrong on a wholesale level. And I was thinking to myself, why put body cameras on cops if you won't also put them on the officials, on the elders, on the Jezebels? I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if our elected leaders, if our politicians, if the people who administer large bureaucracies, if they had to have body cameras, if they had to actually conduct their business in the open where people could see what they were doing. I, I just thought, you know, I, I don't know if that could ever happen, but imagine a world where there are no backroom deals, where every deal is televised. You know, it's C-SPAN, but but they're actually doing the real business and not not something for show in front of the cameras. If everything they did was in public, uh, imagine a world where no one could say, I, you know, my, my, my advisors won't testify to you because there's executive privilege. Imagine if there was no executive privilege. Instead of that, there was executive responsibility that the president, um, the, the former president, whoever, whoever was, was being examined actually had to put their cards on the table. Just imagine what that would be like. We have this idea that somehow that officials should be able to work uh, things in, 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 in secret. And I'm not sure where that comes from. A hundred years ago, uh, President Woodrow Wilson 
uh, proposed 14 points after World War One was was over. He said that he said the nations of the world should adopt these 14 principles, and the very first principle was open covenants openly arrived at. There's this idea that that the best disinfectant is sunshine, and so the more we the more we expose uh, things to the to the light, the the less wrong they are. So I think we should ask that question as Ahab. We are the king, whether we like it or not, and. Not any one of us is king, but collectively are we. And we ought to ask ourselves, what is Jezebel doing in our name? What are the elders and officials doing in our name with our seal? So I think that that's a fair question for us to ask. And maybe it's too much. Maybe we'll never get to that place where they, they have body cameras for every congressman and senator. Uh, I, I'd like to see that, though. I think it would be a good thing to try out. But But if we can't expect that to actually happen, we can at least ask ourselves, how about if we modeled it? How about if Christians acted as if we had body cameras? If we conducted ourselves in such a way that, that people would, would say they're acting as if God's watching. Maybe there is a God. Maybe, maybe they really believe there is a God. Because we, we do believe that. We believe that God is watching. But what if not only God could watch us, but our neighbors? If we, if we let them see that we are acting in ways, um, to, to, to be sure that what we do is upright, that nothing we do is wrong. Jesus said that everybody who does evil hates the light. So why don't we as Christians act as people who are in the light? Let us put away the, the deeds of darkness. Let us, let us put, a, put away the, the, the deeds of Jezebel and the deeds of these uh, elders and officials and these liars. Let's not bear false witness. Let's make our witness our everyday life and the way we live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Ten Commandments. Um, we, we confess that they are broke, that we have broken them, as Jesus told us, that, that we have missed oftentimes the letter of the law and certainly the spirit in which the law was given. So, Lord, we pray that you would convict us, help us to see the way that we have violated all of the commandments, and in particular, Lord, over the next few weeks, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the ways that we bear false witness against our neighbors. We pray that you would not only show that to us, but you would convict us so that we can rethink how we do that and why, and that we can model a better form of behavior for the people around us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.